0: Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braugh, and I also lead Russia's Modern Deterrence Project. Many thanks, as always, to willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. When Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, national security experts, commentators, and politicians all around the world predicted that Estonia's Narva region would be next. There was a virtual pilgrimage of correspondence to Narva. But Rijo Terras, Estonia's chief of defence, was the man who had to figure out what to do if his country's mighty neighbour did indeed decide to take Narva. Terras has had the daunting task of leading Estonia's defence against many other forms of aggression too, both traditional kinetic ones and gray zone attacks. The latter includes cyber attacks, for example, the Russian attack that brought down the internet in large parts of Estonia in 2007. And it also includes disinformation campaigns and subversion of civil society. Teras is, in fact, the first chief of defense since Estonia's reindependence independence in 1991 to have spent his whole career in the Estonian Armed Forces. His predecessors all served in the Soviet Armed Forces for some period of time. Last year, General Terras joined us on Civic Street when he retired from the armed forces and became president of the defense division of Milrem, which is a leading robotics company based in Estonia. Then last year, he was elected a member of the European Parliament. And he's the perfect person, in other words, with whom to discuss kinetic threats and grey zone threats against both Estonia and Europe more widely. So I will come back to his impressive career in a moment. But, General, uh, first I have to ask, you served your mandatory three-year military service in the Soviet Union, specifically in the Soviet Navy. Those of us who didn't do the military service in the Soviet Union think of it as an extremely difficult experience for the conscripts with austere conditions and hazing by older conscripts. And so I'm keen to hear from you as somebody who did do your military service in the Soviet armed forces, what did you take with you from your time as a conscript? Uh, what did you learn from that time? And Was it useful in any way to your subsequent career?
1: Well, as these things are, if you look uh, back on them from the very far away, like uh, 30, 40 years, everything was very nice. Uh, I uh, think it was a good experience on the the end. I hated that at the time as I was conscripted, uh, first, uh, I didn't like the whole system. Secondly, everybody did two years, I had to do three years and even three months in addition. It was too long, we have not seen the families, We I had only 10 days vacation during uh, my three years of service. But on the other hand, if you are a sailor, uh, you like the sea, I have seen big storms in the northern Atlantic, I have seen uh, very nice weather, seven months along in the Mediterranean, I've seen Cuba. So from, from the current point of view, I would say an experience which young men need to have some time to time, but it should not be in the in the occupation army. That is the point.
0: <laughs> that is a vital point. And uh, for those of you young listeners who worry about national service, which is making comeback with a much better setup than obviously than the Soviet Union had, Consider this. Most countries today have one year or less, and it includes quite a bit more time off than General Terra's got 10 days during three years of service. Now, General, after your, uh, after your military service, you studied history at the University of Tartu, a famous Estonian university. And then you deserted the, the, the Navy part of the Soviet armed forces and became an infantry officer in independent Estonia's armed forces. And in that capacity, as an army officer, you rose quickly through the ranks. And you have taken commander courses in Sweden, and Germany. You gained a master's degree from the University of the Bundeswehr in Munich. And you were Estonian's defense attaché in Germany and Poland. And you also served in Iraq. And at age 44, you were appointed Estonia's chief of defense. To my knowledge, the youngest chief of defense in a liberal democracy in modern times. Congratulations.
1: Well, my successor is, uh, was 43 as he started after me. So it's okay. We an important school. I... Attending, and that's the Royal College of Defense Studies 2010. So I think that it was a good preparation for the job uh, I afterwards had. But other than that, I think these were very different years that time as we, we started with the armed forces in 1991. I became an army officer because as I went to the courses, there was no army, no navy, no air force. And after the course, I was one of the two company commanders of Estonian army. Navy was founded three years later, Air Force, even much later. So that means that they were no, not that much of a choice. That's why I joined army. I joined it not because I'm kind of a military man. I actually, after spending three years in the Russian Navy, I decided I don't want to have anything to do with the military whatsoever. And the started my studies for the history teacher. But uh, as Estonia became independent I was on the barricades in, during the August coup d'etat with other students and after that I d- decided that I'll do at least a couple of years of service just to defend the country and that that's where it came from.
0: And um, you did so with great distinction. Now I wanted to ask regarding Estonia's situation today with regards to its national security. How does it compare to the time when when you first joined the the Kalev single infantry battalion as a second lieutenant in in 1992?
1: Well, uh, the two answers, it's completely different. On the same time, it is very similar. Uh, Completely different because now Estonia has armed forces which uh, is the size of uh, more than 35,000 if, uh, if you take the reserve as well. We have weapons, we have training, we have been participating in operations from Afghanistan, Iraq, Mali, uh, you call it. So everywhere where there's been a NATO force or European force deployed, Estonians have been there. On the other hand... Russia is still aggressive. Russia is still imperialistic. Russia is still ready and using its military force in order to achieve political goals. Russia is more organized. If you compare it with 1992, Yeltsin's Russia was not that strong. It was weaker. And I absolutely contradict to many of Europeans who say that uh, weak Russia is dangerous i am absolutely convinced that for small countries along the borders weak russia is better than the strong russia and we have seen as russia became stronger and stronger its military is well organized and well financed the last 15 20 years of putin's reign russia has attacked its neighbors be it uh, georgia be it Ukraine, or today, what happens in Belarus is just again one show of force. Okay, it's a covert op- operation today. It's more a special operation today, but still, Russia is very much involved in the in the current uh, crisis in Belarus as well. So that's the big difference. But as a member of NATO and the European Union, and having UK troops. Danish troops, French troops on the soil of Estonia. Estonia has never been safer during the history than it is today.
0: I'm glad you mentioned enhanced foreign presence, which is, of course, the initiative within which various NATO allies, troops are in Estonia today, uh, led by the UK. I want to go back to, to discuss deterrence, because EFP is an initiative by NATO to deter Russia. And when Estonia gained independence, as, um, as we all know, one of, of Estonia's first goals was to join NATO and the European Union simply because it knew it needed that protection. And, and you mentioned that yourself, General, and, and you also mentioned that at the, at the time, Estonia didn't have an air force, and that's why today, still, the Baltic air policing helps protect Estonia. And that's, in fact, where we first met when uh, one NATO country handed over to another NATO country at the MRA Air Force Base airbase in Estonia. But I want to ask you, uh, so we have both Baltic air policing, which is a fantastic NATO initiative, which I don't think gets enough credit. It's NATO allies 24 hours a day protecting the skies of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And we also have enhanced foreign presence now in, in the Baltic states and Poland. And I think the challenge is, it's impossible to, to measure or to quantify deterrence. But what would you say, do these initiatives by NATO Have they managed to convince Russia not to do things it might otherwise have done?
1: Well, the best deterrence is the cohesion and the willingness of the nation to defend itself. And uh, everything uh, which comes in addition is uh, very important. If you compare it with Ukraine, it was easy for the Russians to take Crimea because people in Crimea, they didn't believe in the central government of Ukraine, which was corrupt and I didn't give the the people uh, what they were expecting from the nation. If the government is supported by people, and if the people see the difference between the independence or uh, occupation, uh, then it is already a good step forward. A small nation like Estonia cannot defend itself only with its own means even if we would put 10 percent of the gdp on allocated uh, for for defense that would be not enough because the missiles uh, the tanks and all the military equipment cost vast even more than for big countries because they have their own industry so we need to do it together and therefore this presence is important but i think the first and the foremost is the willingness of the nation and that and to show that estonia has had a sequence of, uh, of big exercises. Uh, my last year in, in, uh, in service, uh, 2018, I, I had an exercise which uh, was up to almost 20,000 Estonians were deployed on the field all over Estonia. No notice or short notice mobilization. People didn't know that they are mobilized. They were mobilized in 48 hours, uh, equipped and ready to fight. It's not about whether I believe Estonia is defendable or Estonia wants to be defended. It's, uh, it's that Putin needs to believe that, uh, that Estonia is ready and NATO is willing. And all the exercises, be it uh, air policing operation, uh, be it uh, enhanced force presence, but all the exercises, open spirit, you but know what happened? This is all show of force. And Russia understands only fists. It's like boys on the on the schoolyard. They they only understands the fists, and if you show weakness, they will take the advantage. And therefore, it is always for the small boys good to have big guy around the corner. And the big guy around the corner is always United States. And uh, and therefore, the last developments where United States have invested uh, more in the Eastern European defense have even planned to send some troops to Poland. In, in addition to enhanced forward presence. I think these are moves which are important for the security environment in the Baltic States.
0: And it's uh, so important what you just mentioned about us showing a united front. And I must say, I often worry that we squabble so much that, that the investments that we make in, in military hardware and military personnel could be uh, harmed by this internal squabbling within NATO and even within countries, uh, because we look like we don't take ourselves seriously. Or we wouldn't. We would hesitate to to use these resources that we have. Take taxpayers' money to. And and so it's uh, the the point you make about showing cohesion is is so important. Now, uh, General, I want to to ask you about gray zone aggression as well, and it's something that that is it's obviously very clever because it exploits the weaknesses of our liberal democracies and that's why it's so easy to use and, and as a result much used by both uh, russia and china it's not one major attack it's much harder to defend against it or respond to it because how do you respond to an attack like that there is no protocol to use and there is no appropriate action and it's also challenging because you have to convince the public that they have to be part of the solution. So, for example, Estonia today has good cyber defense and involves uh, volunteers. And I wanted to ask, how significant is, uh, from your perspective, the Estonian public's involvement today in keeping the country safe? Is it enough or could there be more initiatives, could there be more involvement? Uh,
1: I would come back to the cohesion of the of the nations, which is in this context as important as, as the cohe- cohesion of one nation Estonians. There are three... Uh, things which have to be right. First thing, people of the country need to believe in the country. That is that Estonia needs to make sure that all the people, be whatever nation, whatever language they speak, they all are supporting the current government. It is very easy to lose the trust. So now, right now, uh, the support to NATO, to the defense investments, to defense sector, is uh, almost, or to the defense forces, is almost 80%. Through, uh, through all the different groups of nation. So that is the first thing. You need to believe yourself. The second thing, and it is more important and very difficult to gain, is that your allies, people, need to believe the necessity of defending the country. That means that you know, the, the German businessmen, or even the park keeper in Ireland, or whoever else in Europe or NATO country needs to really trust and believe that NATO is worth of, and to, because attack against one NATO country is against all the NATO countries. So it needs to be believed. And in this context, it is very bad what is happening right now between UK and Europe. I mean, that is really undermining the unity, or between Turkey and Greece. Or the other conflicts, and that always is something which uh, you have to work daily on it. And third one is then to make sure that that your adversary believe that all these two other things work. So these three things are in connection with each other. So I really do hope that uh, Europe finds uh, its way through these very difficult times uh, of crisis. Uh, and uh, I don't count only Corona as the crisis even more, I count Brexit as a crisis right now for the European security, because UK has been a very important part of the European security infrastructure, it still is, but any conflict between Germany, France, and UK is very counterproductive. I like your term gray zone, (laughs) because um, uh, I think the hybrid is invented by the Russians. In order to do things which, which are below the screen, which cannot be counted as a real war war act. Uh, I think uh, it all has no success if it's not backed by the weapons. And then you saw in Ukraine, it didn't work with the soft means, economy, politics, or social media. So they had to attack physically. And if the physical force is not there, it is very difficult to succeed. It denies and all this. The other thing is, Uh, If somebody tells people in Narva that outside is raining, but they look out of the window and see it is sunshine, then they believe in their own eyes that it is sunshine and not rain. And, And if somebody tells your life in Narva is so bad, so the Narva people look over the border and see that the pensions are 10 times less, that the social security is non-existent, And they believe that better. Even you will tell in the television that everything is great, but Narva people go shopping in Ivangorod and see that is all not true. So, all these things play a role in this security. But as I said, the foremost, own people need to believe it. A German businessman, British barkeepers need to believe it. And we need to make sure that uh, Mr. Putin believes that we are strong enough to respond if something would happen.
0: That's so important because deterrence is about psychology and so it doesn't really matter whether Germany puts 1% 1% or 2% or 3% of GDP into defense, if it doesn't, that step isn't backed up by the population. If the population doesn't believe that, that Germany can and should play an important role in the defense of, of the alliance, and in fact, if they don't believe that using the, the threat of weapons is a, an appropriate strategy. and I think with with gray zone defense, it's so important to remember that it's not just about keeping our country safe with weapons. It's about what the rest of us, the civilians, can do, which is to exercise caution before sharing information we have read on the Internet. And it's about knowing what to do in case of a crisis. Well,
1: just one thing I want to add. I think it is important that Germany puts 2% of the GDP.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's for sure it
1: is important. They don't understand it yet, but it is important.
0: They will after this interview. I wanted to ask you very quickly, what do you think other countries can learn from Estonia's approach of trying to involve the whole of the population, or at least the critical mass of the population in keeping the country safe?
1: Well, I think it is spreading uh, or coming back. I mean, the concept of their total defence, uh, which was not very popular word uh, in the 90s, where NATO said out of area, out of business, or the... I think it's coming back. In some countries like Sweden, Norway, or Finland, it needs just to be warmed up. Even Switzerland uh, has decided to go back to the mobilization force, which they have abandoned a couple of years ago or uh, 10 years ago. I think people start to understand. I heard that this week, first time after the Second World War, their public alarm system uh, of Germany was tested they they did send emails and, and had the signals i'm living in in the hague and every monday in the hague there is a at 12 o'clock you get the message uh, that it is just a test but everybody in the public uh, will be informed about uh, if something would happen i mean these things are coming back which is good which is no doubt uh, important and i think the focus should be Military force is not the only thing which defends the country. It is about the Minister of Interior, all the police force, what is, how it is backed up. People don't care if if the house burns down. They don't care whether Russia is going to attack because their first priority is that the house is not burned down. So firefighting is important. People need to be ready, trained, and everybody needs to know that the medical system needs to be ready to take big casualties. I mean, we have seen in COVID that the hospitals were not ready to take big numbers of the patients. So that is something where government has to invest in. Do you have enough food and fuel? For example, from the food point of view, if uh, I looked at it 10 years ago, as I started in the Ministry of Defence talking about the total defence, how much of food will be... In Estonia, if all the transit ways will be cut, yeah, we found out it's one and a half days. So all the spaghetti's from Italy or whatever they come and they go the same moment they are sold to the public. But if you don't have the transit, you don't have uh, reso- uh, re- really food storage on the storage. So you need to take care of that as well. So these are the things which government has to look at the systematically. And the biggest catastrophe which can happen to any country is the war. So that's why it is so important. And I think the nations are, going, uh, are looking at it from, from different perspectives. Cyber defense, classical thing which people cannot do uh, themselves. It has to be organized by the government. Government has to give the possibility and to, has to uh, introduce the hygiene, which is the Estonian word for cyber hygiene. If you clean your teeth, the same, the same way you have to work with your computer, you to clean it every day, to be aware that there's a lots of dangers. These things have to be organised by the government.
0: And all those tasks give an impetus to the different parts of society to be involved in the solution, because nobody would take lightly the prospect of, of their country running out of food after one and a half days. So businesses can be part of the solution. Ordinary citizens can be part of the solution. For example, by knowing what to do if there is um, a shortage of food in in supermarkets. Lastly, General, I want to ask you, since since you started your career, maybe uh, uh, not voluntarily by serving in in, in the Soviet armed forces, but nevertheless, at age 18, you started your military career. It's often said today that current teenagers are snowflakes and then they, they would melt under pressure. I maintain that that teenagers would rise to the occasion if they were given a challenge, for example, being Mm -hmm. selected for national service in in, uh, Estonian armed forces, in the Norwegian armed forces, for example, which uses a different model where only a very small percentage are selected. So I want to ask, what do you think of of the prospect of involving teenagers in national security, not just in national service, but more widely in different roles?
1: Well, uh I am not the person to say that the youth is uh, really not what it was in the past. They are different, but they are more capable and so-called Tom generation is more capable in doing many things which uh, my generation never did. Coming from a modern technology company which produces unmanned ground vehicles where, where the soldier needs to be at, um, with the thumbs and not with a weapon. It, it can, he can be uh, kilometers, uh, even no, if, if not hundreds of kilometers away and operate the weapon system in the battlefield. And I see in our company, we take the, conscri- uh, the people who have uh, been through the conscription because they understand the, the idea of defense, but they are very capable due to, to different games they have played. Uh, to operate uh, unmanned systems, be it in the air or in the ground or in the sea. And that is the future anyway. Uh, we we um, need to understand Russia is experimenting and having its uh, unmanned systems fielded. China is doing that. Europe is talking about how to put directives on it, uh, how to ethically not uh, use that. Everybody else is doing uh, very in high-speed technology development. So that is the future, and for this future, young generation fits perfectly. And I really trust that if country is attacked, Estonia will be defended by these young men who spend their conscription in Estonian army for the eight to eleven months. As my son is a reserve officer, he did his his service as an artillery officer, and he likes to go back to the mobilization exercise.
0: Speaking of which, a few years ago, I visited one of your mobilization exercises with the public affairs officer to the field, and I I spoke to one of the soldiers there, and then after we had finished speaking, I said, so what's your name? And he said, Lukas Ilves, and I said, Ilves, that that rings a bell. Isn't your father the president? And Yeah.
1: uh, (laughs) Yeah, but Prince Harry was a soldier as well, so. Yeah,
0: national security (laughs) involves everybody. General, last question. I know you're an opera fan, and so am I, so I have to ask you. What sort of opera? And please don't tell me Bel Canto.
1: No, uh, I uh, really do like Puccini. And unfortunately, right now it's very difficult uh, because the opera houses are closed and it's not that much happening in this field. But um, I I, I do like Puccini and uh, Turandot is my favorite.
0: Good answer, although I would maybe not rate Turin not the highest, uh, but very good answer with Puccini there. That was uh, Rio Terras, who was until 2018 Estonia's chief of defense and is now a member of the European Parliament. This is the last episode of season one of On the Casp. We'll be back very soon with the second season. But in the meantime, please feel free to go back to the archive. And as always, feel free to tweet me and to recommend the show to others. See you on the cusp.